It's great to be here. I feel like that I'm among uh, family and friends. We always take great encouragement uh, home to us when we leave here from Rockport. Uh, just a lot of a lot of great fellowship, a lot of great Bible teaching over the years, and we enjoy our time while we're here. So it's a great opportunity to be here with you. I want to uh, thank Scott and Kyle for that. I want to give you a testimony uh, really quick about what God has done in my life. As I look back at, uh, at my life, I'll be a half a century old in two days, and, uh, and I am a scoundrel from Potosi, and that's where I was, I was born. And, but uh, my, my journey uh, is a lot like yours. You can look back, and it's like you're playing Connect the Dots. Uh, you, can, you can look back at God's uh, sovereign hand in your life and say, wow, that's what He was doing then. And I just want to share of those things, not to make much of me, but to make much of Him over the years. And uh, I, I did attend Mid-America, and the first day that I was there visiting, I had a professor there ask me, his name was Stan May, he said, how is God going to use you in missions? I'd never thought about it, never intended that He would, but that was in 97. I took my first trip in the early 2000s to Bolivia. There I saw the great need in uh, the southern hemisphere where a lot of people knew the gospel, but the pastors needed theological training. And that was just a huge burden that the Lord laid on my heart one time when I was at a, a, a Bible seminary in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, teaching about uh, 40 to 50 pastors. And it was an amazing moment that God just, uh, I think, taught me that this is what you need to be doing in addition to your you're pastoring, you need to be training these brothers. And, and so I took that to heart. And in 2005 and 2006, I moved my family to San Jose, Costa Rica, where we learned Spanish and uh, did some a deep dive on cultural studies and that experience. And then I began to, to see in, in that experience that God was connecting some dots for me. And that was uh, just saying this pastoral training is, is exactly what I want you to be doing. And that was confirmed in a big way there. But something else happened. is When I was there, I was able to serve at the language school as a pastoral chaplain to all the other missionaries. And I began to see the, the great need that missionaries have to have what we call uh, just a loving pastoral care. Another thing that we call it is member care or missionary care. And uh, missionaries go through a lot of stress. And uh, the, the stress levels, if you do a study on, on the stress levels, you, you get stressed when you get bad news from the doctor or when a loved one dies. And, and, but missionaries are really stressed. And so the goal in pastoral care for them is to care well for them and to come along, alongside their sending church and to assist them. Well, I joined Reaching and Teaching in 2018. And I joined uh, with uh, the, the idea that I would be a global trainer, and that is exactly what I did for a couple of years, and that was training pastors that I, I knew that the Lord wanted me to do. And in the fall of 2020, I was able to, to do that other thing that God has called me to do, and that I was appointed into the long-term department of uh, reaching and teaching to head up member care. 
Well, we've grown a lot since then, and there are other member care associates, and uh, we are thankful to be serving. Cammie, my wife, serves uh, our uh, missionary wives uh, in Latin America, and she's continuing to to do that. She just uh, came off of a week of training on how to serve uh, children as well, and I serve uh, our missionaries in Latin America and in Africa. And so, you say, what... What, what exactly do you do? And that's a, that's a good question. And I want to illustrate it like this in a couple of ways. One is uh, if you go to a, a game, maybe a football game, and you see uh, on the sidelines there are people that are running around with a bunch of things on their hip like tape and scissors and things like that. That's called an athletic trainer. And what you haven't seen at the game is that they have prepared... Those players, each each individual player, uh, before the game, by knowing where their weak spots are, and, and for example, taping them up, and a lot like uh, that, uh, member care folks, I and Cami and others, uh, help prepare missionaries uh, to uh, try to face those stress stresses that they're going to face. But also something else that the reason those trainers are there at the football game is, in case there's an injury, they're the first ones there. Uh, to give assistance and aid. And that's what we do. And uh, we, I also am always on the lookout for opportunities to train pastors. And I'll share a little bit more about that. But another way that I want to uh, illustrate uh, what we do and also introduce my sermon is, is to say about a year ago, uh, my oldest daughter was married. And uh, it was in, in August... And so many of you were involved uh, in that. And uh, when, when you come to a, a wedding, the goal is to make much of the bride and groom. To make much of the bride and groom. And so the, the bride has bridemaid, bridesmaids and bridal assistants and bridal helpers. Why? So that the bride and ultimately the groom will be really exalted and in a sense glorified. Not in a fleshly way, but that's what a wedding really does. The dress that she wears, everything that uh, is done at the wedding is done to exalt her and Him and to glorify her and Him. And I'm thankful that Matt and Abby, when they were married last summer, that uh, their goal was to exalt and glorify the Lord. And... Uh, in the same way, I think I see all the people that came to help us with Abby's wedding. And you were bridal assistants. And in the same way, Cami and I are bridal assistants to the local church. We're not the church as a as sending organization, but we come alongside the local church and help the local church do to do missions. But I do want to take this moment as I illustrate... Both in what we do and in uh, getting into my sermon, my, the, the, the title of my sermon today is Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. So it's about glorifying God and going back to the idea of, of glorifying uh, the bride at uh, my, my daughter's wedding is last uh, the, the, the day of the practice. I had worked all day. Uh, you know how it is. You have kids getting married. You're cooking. We, we were feeding almost 300 people, and so I was cooking chicken all day. 
And I have this friend. Uh, his name's Kyle. You know him. And he walks up and he says, Hey, I want to help you with that. And <laughs> it's just chicken, but it makes me emotional, right? Uh, <laughs> I was exhausted. And Kyle comes up and says, I want to help you. Well, uh, that's a good illustration of of exalting this this bride, this wedding, and the groom. Uh, another thing that, that occurred is that uh, uh, Phoebe made the cake. Uh, she she took her gifts and her talents and was able to bless our family and Abby by making the cake. And that's what it means to glorify somebody. You take your gifts and your talents and all that you have and you you give you give it to the cause. Not I think one of the greatest the greatest uh, moments that Cami and I had was to see Abby in her wedding dress. And that meant the world to us because Abby was having a hard time finding her wedding dress. And we've got a friend by the name of Phoebe that says, hey, she can borrow mine. And she did. And so doing that, she glorified the wedding. Uh, We have friends that help serve the cake. You know who you are. (laughs) We have friends, I think it was the McAllister family, who did all the cooking. Uh, the lovings were there. They helped in many ways. And the greatest help that you can give a family at a wedding is by helping them clean up. <laughs> and oh my goodness, many, many times uh, we were just overwhelmed by your love and your support. And you think about the Gospel, and it's not a far stretch because Paul used marriage as a picture of Christ and the church. And I think that we can borrow from that today when we think about glorifying the Lord Jesus and in the local church. And one of the main things that went unseen uh, for, for Matt and Abby's wedding was Matt's pastor from California. His name's Manny. He, 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 he did a lot of biblical counseling, premarital counseling for them to prepare them. And in so doing exalted the Lord and exalted them. A lot of ways, member care, what we do in missions is like premarital counseling and like marital counseling, and we get to do uh, that as well. So when we think about loving Christ and loving the bride of Christ, it means that we are we, we love helping the bride of Christ. We love the mission of the local church. We love glorifying the Lord and God deserves all of our giving Him the glory. And so with that said, I want to encourage you to, if, you, if you're interested in reaching and teaching or you want to know a little bit more, just a little advertisement, the website at Reaching and Teaching is rtim.org. It stands for Reaching and Teaching International Ministries, rtim.org. You want to know about what we do, or be able to contact us or email us if you want to be put on our newsletter. You can go into the about and go to staff, and you'll find both Cami and I there. Well, let's do what we came here to do and hear from the Word. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, we find ourselves 
in the Gospel of John, recording the very last week of Christ's ministry, His life on earth, Passion Week, we call it, beginning in verse 12, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is gone after Him. In particular, I want us to pay attention to these, these couple of next verses. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whosoever loves his life loses it, and whosoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, for this is... For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice came has come for Your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. The key, I think the key verse that I want us to, to, to look at today and to, to see as the center of the whole chapter, not just what I read, uh, is verse 28 when Jesus says, Father, glorify Your name. You see, that was Christ's goal for His whole life and His whole ministry. That was His goal for uh, Passion Week. That was His goal for the cross. He wanted the Father to be glorified. That's why I've entitled the message, Soli Deo Gloria. We want the glory of God to be central. And so I hope to def define that. And in our, in our work in the passage today, I want you to, to kind of... Uh, take this mental illustration that verse 28 is like the rock being thrown into a lake with 
concentric circles going out from it. And there are many things that we could talk about, but in the chapter there are uh, mentions of other types of glory and other events that are moving. And so I think that we'll, we'll anchor in verse 28, and then we'll go forward to some verses that we haven't read, and then we'll go back uh, to verse uh, 20, 21, and 22. So that's kind of where we're headed today in the message. And so the main idea uh, for the message is our Lord's goal in His life and ministry was to reveal and reflect the Father's glory. And I believe this must be our goal as well. To glorify Christ, to glorify the Father, to glorify the Spirit, to, to, to glorify God. Uh, and so, my first point is, glory to God was demonstrated in Christ's ministry. It was demonstrated in His death. It was demonstrated in His glorification and of course, the resurrection. And we see in this response that Jesus had to these that had come to Him, uh, the Greek people that had come to Him, you would, you would think that it might be a different response. But we believe that this was, in a sense, and I cannot wrap my mind around it, but it was a, almost a trigger for Christ to realize that the Greeks had come. And then He goes into this thinking about His death on the cross. It was a move upon Him knowing that a special time had come. And Christ had in view at this time His Father's glory. And uh, in verse 28 we see that it says, A voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so this is the Father telling the Son... After the Son, Jesus had said, Father, glorify Your name. And the Father's response was, Yes, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And how did that take place? Well, it was, it was done in the person of Christ and in His ministry. At His baptism, you hear this voice uh, from the Father at the transfiguration. You hear it, you hear it here. And uh, the Father says, I've both glorified it in meaning that He was glorified by Christ just coming in the incarnation, coming to earth, born of a virgin. He was glorified by Christ's ministry. He was glorified by the obedience of Christ and the miracles of Christ. And in, in light of the context, the, the, the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, the Father was glorified in it. And so the Father was supporting Christ under upholding Him and carrying Him through His sufferings and soon to be death and raising Him from the dead. And when Jesus responds to this request from the Greeks, He says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, that's an interesting response. But as I say, it was a it was a trigger that 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 Christ knew the Greeks were coming and had come, and it's time to set your face towards the cross. And he begins to talk about death and illustrating it by planting a seed. And verse twenty five: Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I think that's the key to begin to understand this Christian wording that we may not thoroughly understand, 
what it means to glorify. How did Christ glorify the Father? He died. He died. Jesus says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you hate your life, you'll gain it. There's something interesting going on. How do we glorify the Father? We've got to die to ourselves. And Jesus said in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and that where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you're dying to yourself by not serving yourself. You're serving the Father. You're serving Christ. You're in His work and in His will. And this voice that comes, Jesus says, This voice wasn't for me. But it's for your sakes. And I think specifically, it would help everyone, but but really it would help the disciples. Among all the people that were there, the disciples would later need this indicator that the Father had given and that urgent need of making sense of it all that their, their friend, their leader, had just been put on a cross. Now that's... That's like uh, going to the electric chair for us or, or something, something similar. But they would need those things. And the Father lovingly gave it for the disciples so that they could later on understand it. Because in the moment, in that moment, there was a lot going on. And they didn't grasp it. And yet by God's grace, they would grasp it later. And so what would they grasp? That the shameful cross... And all that flowed from it was not a defeat, but it was a victory. We just sang about it. It was not a defeat, but it was a victory. It was not final destruction, but ultimate glorification. And then Jesus says in verse 31 that now is the judgment of the world. It could mean several things, but I'm pretty certain that Jesus was pointing to that current Jewish world that things were coming to an end in that world which would ultimately end in A.D. 70. But because of the Jews and and their rejection of Christ at that temporarily at, at that time, they would, they, they would be judged in, in A.D. 70. And so Jesus is saying, now is the judgment of the world. This Jewish world that they were rejecting Christ. And so how do we apply this first point? What do we do? And and I've talked about it already. Our goal is to glorify God. It wouldn't be a a good sermon unless you had some Piper quotes going here. So here, here we go. John Piper said about glorifying God, he says, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect His greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all of His attributes and all the all-satisfying beauty of His manifold perfections. I remember one time I was my, my children were, were, were pretty young and we were moving. Or we'd moved into a house and this house had all kinds of these full-body mirrors and I was told, take those down. We, that's not our style. So we took them down and I was outside and the kids were playing and I thought, aha! So it was really hot and sunny that day and I took that big full body mirror and I reflected the sun into my kids' eyes and they say, oh, Dad, you're killing us. That, you know, you've heard of a dad joke. Well, that's been my kids' whole existence. You know, I do stuff like that. And 
And I thought, that's a good illustration about how you glorify God. You take the sun, the, the, the literal S-U-N, and it's all, all of its brightness and all of its power, and you take the mirror of your soul and you turn it out to others as you give to Him and worship Him. 1 Corinthians 10.30 31 tells us that whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. So all of our life should be glorifying the Lord. And that first step in glorifying the Lord is we see what Jesus was doing. He was talking about dying. He was talking about doing the Father's will. It takes humility. We see Paul wrote about that in Philippians chapter 2. So the first step in glorifying God is having God do a work of humility in our hearts. C.S. Lewis said this about uh, a byproduct of, of truly glorifying God is humility. But this is what he said about humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of ourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. How do we glorify God? Spurgeon has had something to say about it in his book, Morning and Evening. He said, Lord, help me to glorify You. I'm poor. Help me to glorify You by contentment. I'm sick. Help me to give You honor by patience. I have talents. Help me to extol You by spending them for You. I have time. Lord, help me to redeem it that I may serve You. I have a heart to feel. Lord, let that heart feel no love but yours and glow with no flame but affection for you. I have a head to think. Lord, help me think of you and for you. You've put me in this world for something. Lord, show me what it is and help me to work out my life purpose. C.H. Spurgeon. In, I think, February, one morning or evening. That's where you can find that. Well, the second point of my message is... Not even found in where I've read, but it's forward into the story because this is a whole one story. The chapter is one uh, one story, one event. And they're they're gathered and they're thinking. They're, a lot of people are there. Uh, Christ is coming uh, to Jerusalem. There's a lot of things being said about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and and the Pharisees they see Lazarus and Christ as a great threat. And I want us to take notice in verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now this may seem out of place, but... With the, I think the theme of the chapter is glory. So Christ said, I want to glorify the Father. And there were people that said, oh, wow, we, we believe in your power. We believe in your miracles. But they had something else in mind that they wanted to glorify. And namely, it was themselves. And we're th- thinking about Christianity in general and missions today and... Just walking with the Lord, I think this is a great challenge for all of us in our day. It's so easy to want to glorify ourselves and to forget about glorying God. And that can 
make for a, an unhealthy Christian, an unhealthy church, and an unhealthy missionary all around. So in verse 42, it says that there were some, those in authority that, that believed. And, and we can say that there were of that order men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who no doubt believed truly. But there were many who gave mental assent to Him. They gave mental assent to His power and yet it wasn't quite enough. They loved the praise of men. Verse 43, they, they, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so, by confessing Christ, they knew that they would run the risk of losing their place, of losing their maybe livelihood, of losing influence. And so, uh, Philippians chapter uh, 3, we have the story of, of a guy who actually experienced the things that they were afraid of. Let's, let's give these people credit. They knew that if they were to follow Christ wholeheartedly, there would be a price to pay. And Paul says, ah, I, was, I was the chief of the Jews. And it's a great passage. I won't take time to read it, but it, it's, it's a great passage where Paul says, I was, I was chief among all of the, of the chief Jewish people religiously. I, I was this and I was that. And, and I was so important. Philippians 3, verses 1-6, through 6, we have Paul's record of religion. In verse 7, he, he speaks of, and, and I'll, read, I'll read verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's glorifying. That's dying to self. Same, same idea that Christ was doing. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And verse 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His suffering. I want to commend to you a very helpful book. It's by Paul Miller. It's called The J-Curve. It's about this chapter and how he applies this in dying daily to self and selfish ambitions and selfish desires and in that dying to self and glorifying the Lord, you're being raised with Christ each and every day. And in so doing, you're fellowshipping with Him. It's a great tool personally and I use it a lot with our missionaries. Well, we live in an interesting day to say the least. I want to conclude this point by sharing the last few thoughts of Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Because the whole book is very philosophical. It's talking about how we have found ourselves in a very pluralistic society. And he ends the book by saying, many Christians are asking whether there is an age historical age in Christianity that provides a precedent for the one in which we live? Is there something that we can learn from the past in order to help us today? He says Protestants are, are they, they may want to look back to the Reformation when the Scripture principle galvanized reform of the church. 
And the Reformation unleashed religious choice on the world in a manner that meant Reformation itself could never again occur in such a form. So he says we can't look to the Reformation. We've got to go back to the second century. That's where we find ourselves in society. He says in the second century, the church was a marginal sect with a dominant pluralistic society. Now this goes with the fear of man. Okay, They were fearing other people's opinions instead of fearing God. Well, in the second century, the church lived in a society like ours. And what happened? Well, the church, she appeared subversive in claiming Jesus as King and was viewed as immoral in her talk of eating and drinking human flesh and expressing incestuous-sounding love between brothers and sisters. The world did not understand them. They did not understand them. And that's where we are today, he says. In this pluralistic world that we live in, how society has adopted, slowly adopted beliefs, particular beliefs about sexuality and identity that render Christianity immoral and inimical to the civic stability of society as now understood. And so he he says, if you want to learn, you go back and look how they lived as churches in the second century. And this is what he said. What did they have in common? He said, how did... How did they last? They existed as a close-knit, doctrinally bounded community that required her members to act consistently with their faith and to be good citizens of the earthly city as far as good citizenship was compatible with faithfulness to Christ. I read that and I thought, wow. Without Christ and without His strength, we're in trouble. But we need to be teaching God's people personally, and the local church and missionaries how to die to themselves and how ultimately, possibly, how to have to die for Christ. That's where we are. That's where we are. And so we must have a a commitment to Christ in light of persecution that's coming. Now, today, that may be... You may get canceled on social media. Tomorrow it may mean you lose your job. And in the future, whatever God calls you to do, it may mean that you lose your life. Well, let's go back and I'll try to quickly conclude with this third point. Let's look at the Greeks now. Verses 21 and 22 of John chapter 12. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. So these Greek people, they came to Philip and they said, we wish to see Jesus. Why did they come to Philip? Well, we're not 100% sure on this, but we do know that Philip grew up in an area that was very remote and it was about 60 miles from Jerusalem. And Philip, his name is actually a Greek name. And so we think that his parents had a lot of Greek friends, and so these people may have known him, they may not have. But, you know, just like uh, I, I loved it when Kyle illustrated that we're both from Potosi, you know, we're kind of rough ends down there, and everybody kind of knows that. And that's kind of the reputation that where Philip was from, that was, his rep- that was their reputation. They were, 
They were woodsy. They were fishermen. They were hunters. That's what Seda in Bethsaida means, hunting. So these were country boys. I, maybe. I, just, I want to think they are. And they, they came with so great respect to Jesus. And they said to Philip, we would see Jesus. We want to see Him. And this is beautiful, folks. This was, I said this was a trigger for Christ to talk about the cross. What does this represent? Well, we've got to go back a long way. But bear with me. Not long, but a long way. At the Tower of Babel, when mankind <clears throat> wanted to make a great name for themselves and bring glory to humanity, it was the first humanism, and God says, no, you don't. No, you don't. God will get the glory. And so He made all of these languages that we now have to study and learn in order to, to take the Gospel to different parts of the world. And as these Greeks had come, it was a, a symbol, a signal. I think these, these, these Greek people were representative of what was God was about to do. He was about gloriously to open the Gospel up to the entire world. Every tribe, every tongue will get the opportunity. And that's when Jesus says here, He says, And I, in verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. What's He talking about? In context, He's talking about every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, how do I know this? I know it because I can go forward in the book of Revelation and I can look at Revelation chapter 5 and I want to read this to you. Verses 9-13. through 13, And then you'll have the message. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so, I know this church loves missions. I know that you're familiar with people groups. More familiar than a lot of churches are. I want to tell you about a people group that I was with in southern Mexico a couple of months ago. had the opportunity to train some pastors. And as I was teaching, there was a man taking copious notes. And after I finished teaching, he stood up and in a language I will never learn called Chinanteco. It's a language that uh, has words, but it's also tonal. And so they can speak to one another in tones and not just words. Sounds a lot like Chinese. And he stood up and he taught these pastors who are from the mountains around this little town called Usila, Mexico. And he's teaching them. I taught on the Lord's Prayer. And he's teaching them how to pray. And I thought, oh Lord, you've mixed up that language really well, but you're going to get the glory in heaven. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so the question is, how will you glorify the Lord? You can glorify Him by living right here the rest of your life and dying to yourself every day. 
You can glorify Him by seeking the unity of your local church and being on the same page glorifying the Lord. You can glorify Him by going to wherever He calls you to do. You have the message. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your faithfulness. Oh Lord, teach us how to die to ourselves daily. And I pray that You would transform our hearts, transform our families, our churches, and our heart for the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.